I've asked this question before, but I think it's a good question to ask periodically. At this time in your life, who is Jesus to you? If someone were to ask you, who is Jesus, what would you say? So there's a couple of, spot of responses that I believe are, are common. People will often say Jesus is friend, perhaps uh, Lord, Savior, Jesus is God, Jesus is a guide, Jesus could be a number of things at different moments in our lives. And through the recent weeks, at different times, we've kind of looked at different um, identities of Jesus and kind of focused on these different identities to, to draw some new uh, spiritual truths. We've spent some time with uh, Jesus as God, uh, focusing on um, John chapter 8, whenever Jesus uses the divine name, I am. We spent some time on um, Jesus as friend. I no longer call you servants, but friends. Uh, John chapter 15. We spent some time on Matt, um, Matthew chapter 4. Uh, Jesus in the uh, desert being a new Israel and also a new Adam. And last weekend we talked about Jesus as a new Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew chapter 17. And today what I'd like to spend some time on is a new identity that we haven't really spent much time on, at least not recently. And that is Jesus as bridegroom. Jesus as the groom, the bridegroom, with his bride being the church. And that particularly comes alive in today's gospel with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman who encounters Jesus at the well, and through their conversation, it may not be immediately obvious, but what I'll try to do is, is show to you how this conversation in particular is spousal. So first, we have a well. And a well um, is an image that we see a few times in the Old Testament. And usually in the Old Testament, whenever there is a man, a woman, and a well, the story typically culminates in a wedding. So that's the case with Isaac and Rebekah. It's the case with Jacob and Rachel. And it's also the case with Moses and Zipporah. All three of those Old Testament figures, important Old Testament figures, met their wives at a well. And so we understand now that the well uh, is oftentimes a place that foreshadows a marriage, a place of intimacy, a place of encounter between spouses. But this encounter is not just any ordinary man or any ordinary woman. This is the God-man, Jesus Christ. And this is not just any ordinary woman. This is a Samaritan woman, much less a Samaritan woman who's been married five times. Jesus goes out of his way on his journey to pass through Samaria. He didn't have to go through this town, but he, he had this encounter in mind. And this woman, the Samaritan woman, was at the well by herself at noon, at the heat of the day. And so what we could probably um, kind of infer here is that the reason she was going by herself in the heat of the day was because of her public scandalous sin of remarriage, not once, twice, but five times. See, wells were kind of the center of these societies. 
society would build around a water source. So when there was a well, this was, this was central. And it was just a normal part of daily life. You know, when, at a time when you don't have running water, you, you need to go to the well every single day for your basic needs, for drink, for cooking, for cleaning, for bathing, all of things that you need to do. You need to go to the well every day. It's just a normal part of life. And the way that this typically would work is that groups of women and children would include that into their rhythm. And they would go either at the beginning of the day or the end of the day because... It's hot, but the beginning and end of the day is a little bit cooler. So this woman going by herself to the well at noon is significant. You can imagine the, the shame, the isolation that she must be experiencing. And uh, St. Augustine tells us that this woman is a symbol of the church. Why? Because Samaritans were descendants from the Israelites in the northern kingdom but after the northern tribe fell, the, the ten tribes in the north, after they fell to the Assyrians, we spoke about that a couple months ago. After the Assyrians took over the northern tribes, the northern kingdom, they started to intermix and marry with those Israelite peoples. And, and one of the results of that was the Samaritans. So the Samaritans are kind of half Israelite and half Gentile. So they're a good symbol of the church, says Augustine, because it's, it's foreshadowing how the church will be both the Old Testament people of God and the Gentiles. It's a mixture of both. But even further, it's not just a symbol of the church. This woman is a symbol of the broken, sinful humanity who's lost, isolated, ashamed, because of their choices and their sins. So then Jesus, in this conversation, reveals something about living water. As the conversation unfolds and develops further, Jesus goes on and on. He, he first says, give me a drink. He expresses thirst. But as the conversation develops, he also offers a drink. And it's not just any ordinary drink, but rather living water. So just on a, on a literal level, what is living water? Well, that's as opposed to stagnant water. Living water would be like, like running streams or like a river. Water, water that's flowing. But there's a deeper significance here. There's more spousal imagery to be said. Because first century Jews... Before they would enter into a wedding, the bride would undergo a purification bath. And that bridal bath would be referred to as living water. And so it's a little subtle, but I do believe it's on purpose that Jesus expresses the spousal themes to this Samaritan woman, not to propose to her like a human marriage as we know it, but rather because Jesus is the God-made man in order to restore the spousal relationship with his bride, the church. And this Samaritan woman becomes that symbol. It's one among many experiences where Jesus reveals himself as the bridegroom.
The Old Testament prophets uh, often spoke about God's relationship with his people with nuptial imagery. The prophet Hosea, the prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Ezekiel, they all spoke in terms of how we, the people of God, have been unfaithful, just like an unfaithful bride would be in her marriage. And yet God remains faithful. But that God has this love, this covenantal spousal love for each one of us, a love that runs deeper than simply being parent and child, a love that goes deeper than any type of intimacy that we could ever experience on this earth. Sure, the, the, the highest form of intimacy that we know on a natural level is human marriage, but God desires a relationship even deeper than that. The Song of Songs is a book in the Old Testament, um, part of the wisdom literature, and it's a beautiful poem, basically, and it sounds like just a romantic love story between a bride and a groom. And to one extent, that's true. But to another level, it's expressing Jesus and his relationship to his bride, the church. And even deeper than that, it's expressing God's spousal relationship with the individual human soul. In Mark chapter 2, The Pharisees and Sadducees asked Jesus, how come your disciples don't fast like everyone else's disciples, like John's disciples? And Jesus responds to them with very specific words. He says, should they fast while the bridegroom is with them? St. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5, talks about how husbands and wives should love each other and that it should image how Christ loves his bride, the church. In the last book of the, of the Bible, the book of Revelation, it all culminates in a great marriage feast. And one of the last words of the Bible is this, the spirit and the bride say, come. All of this to say that all sprinkled throughout Scripture, there is this imagery of nuptial spousal language. To say that, although it may, it may seem a little odd to you if you haven't heard this before, like it's true that God sees us as his beloved sons and daughters. And we've said that a lot here at this parish. But in addition, God loves each individual soul with an intimacy that surpasses what we know and understand in human marriage, a spousal intimacy, which is to say an an intimacy that is total, an intimacy that is fruitful, an intimacy that is faithful, an intimacy that is free. God wants that for each individual soul. How does he give this living water to us? Well, as always, because theology, it's so rich. And when Jesus speaks, it's always uh, multifaceted. So there's a few ways in which this living water is experienced. First, it's on the cross. That when Jesus, right before he dies, he says, I thirst. Echoing the words that he tells to the Samaritan woman. And as he says, I thirst, of course, it's on a physical level. He's thirsty, but even deeper, he's thirsting for our faith. He's thirsting for our love. He's thirsting for our total commitment to him. And then after he dies, the soldier pierces his heart with a lance and out from it flow blood and water. And this is the living water which begins grace in the world. And it's the source of the grace of the sacraments. 
So to one extent, it's from the cross that living water flows. In another way, John speaks about in his gospel, chapter 7, he has this, this odd occurrence, this, this scene that he talks about where Jesus says, anyone who's thirsty, come to me and I will give you drink. And then John clarifies and says, of this, Jesus is speaking about the Holy Spirit, which he will give after his death. So in other words, the Holy Spirit is the living water. And as we drink deeply of the Holy Spirit and we allow the Holy Spirit to stir up within us and to come alive through us, we experience this living water which quenches our thirst for superficial things elsewhere. And then third, living water is in baptism. I think most of us have been baptized here. And we experience the, the living water, the sacramental water upon us in a physical way, but in a spiritual way, that cleansing of original sin being adopted into God's family and receiving the Holy Spirit and divine life in that moment. In the Catechism of the Catholic Church, uh, verse, uh, the paragraph 16, 17, tells us that the, the baptism is this nuptial bath. The nuptial bath which prepares us for the great, great wedding banquet. And the great wedding, the spousal relationship, the catechism tells us, is experienced in the Eucharist. When God totally gives himself to us and we totally give ourselves to him. All of that is to say, that God wants a deep relationship with us. He wants us to drink deeply. So my question to you is this tonight. Do you thirst for the Lord? Do you feel like right now that you are thirsting for him? That you experience a deep desire for intimacy with God? If not, why not? What is, what is stifling that desire? What is keeping you from that type of thirst? I really believe that, you know, there's a long list, there's probably a long list of things that, that keep us from this thirst, but, but top of the list, I believe, uh, would be shame. I believe the woman at the well experienced shame like no other, being ostracized and isolated, having to go to the well every single day, to drink by herself, ridiculed and persecuted in society because of her choices, because of her sins. But nonetheless, she is just feeling the weight of unworthiness. And she believed in the Messiah. She even told Jesus, I know the Messiah is going to come. She knows that the Messiah is someone that she longs for, but yet... She would have never in a million years imagined that the Messiah would come to her. Much less would change course and go out of his way on his journey to go and seek her out. And that's the mysterious, beautiful pattern of the Lord is that somehow he is drawn to the most ashamed. The greater shame that you experience, there's good news here, the Lord is even more drawn to you just as he was to the Samaritan woman. 
And I believe that if you feel like you're not worthy of such an intimate relationship with God, if you're not worthy of such thirst and and in such an encounter with Christ, I want to tell you otherwise because Jesus is drawn to you no matter what your story might include. But there may be other things. There may be fear, maybe fear of judgment, of being seen following Christ, uh, or, or there may be sins or maybe laziness or distractions or whatever. There's a long laundry list, I'm sure. But, but perhaps we can ask that question, what's keeping us from that thirst? And maybe what could help us is, is simply just meditating on the thirst that Jesus has for you. Mother Teresa, I mean, she devoted her whole life to this. That was part of the charism of the missionaries of charity is I thirst. Those words in every single chapel of the missionaries of charity convents. I thirst. And, and a few years before she died, she, she tried to articulate it in writing to her sisters in this letter where she tried to explain fully. But even as she explains it, you can tell there's like still this sense that she, she still qu- can't quite put it into words. Because what she wants to convey is just how deep is the Father's love for each one of us. And she says she worries that even the missionaries of charity, who have already made great sacrifices, who already pray every single day with, for, for many long moments, she worries that even they don't truly know God's love for them. And if that's true for them, what about us? God thirsts for you. And if we spend more time meditating on that thirst, I believe we would awaken the thirst remaining dormant within our soul. And maybe just simply we can start with that, with a simple prayer, just asking the Lord, Lord, increase my thirst, increase my desire for you. And as he increases that desire, perhaps we can make more space for him in our life, more time for him in prayer. Headed towards the middle of Lent, it's about now that we start to neglect our Lenten penances to fall away and to get discouraged. Perhaps now is a good time to recommit or even just start completely new with some type of space to pray, some type of intentional mental prayer, allowing the Lord to communicate his thirst for us. God thirsts for our faith. He thirsts for our love. He thirsts for our commitment. And perhaps as we think about that, our thirst for God may increase as well. Lord, increase my desire for you. Amen.